Uh, we're going to go back and pick up where we left off uh, before Easter. As you know, if you go backtrack, we spent the five months uh, of the spring going over what we actually know about Jesus from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, we began by covering his life and ministry. And we really started with John the Baptist, which is where historians say is the best anchor that we have historically. Um, down there on the River Jordan. And then we moved up to Galilee with the ministry of Jesus for three years. And then we went to his final week in Jerusalem. And we did that uh, leading up to Palm Sunday. Then we had Easter. We took a break. And then we spent the six weeks after Easter looking at the various resurrection narratives. Now, during that time, we sort of just in passing mentioned the teaching of Jesus. Uh, Jesus had several types of ministry. He was a healer. He did uh, performed what are called dynamis acts of uh, dramatic acts, sometimes called miracles. He did um, symbolic actions that carried great meaning. And he did. He was a teacher. And we're told that over and over. Uh, he taught about the kingdom of God. That was the content. And he taught in parables. And that's pretty much about all that we did. We were not able to really get into the teaching of Jesus because uh, we were needing to move on through the life story. So that means that today we can take the road that we missed and we can begin to pick up. Now, we could go different places. If we wanted to do parables of Jesus, anybody know what gospel you'd go to? You'd go to several, but Luke. Luke has more parables than any other gospel, including uh, parable of the prodigal son. Where would that be? Parable of the good Samaritan and on and on and on. Wonderful. Uh, but we're not going to go there. Uh, we're going to turn to a collection of the teaching of Jesus has been brought together and organized and has been placed in one of the Gospels. It is the most extensive collection of his teaching that we know of at this point that survives. And it's very, very familiar. Anybody here never heard the Sermon on the Mount? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, Sermon on the Mount is found, as you know, and you've probably done 35,000 Bible studies on this in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. It is three entire chapters of just a collection of lots of things that Jesus taught. Uh, this title goes back to the fourth century uh, to St. Augustine. And it's really based on just the way that Matthew kind of introduces the story there in verses one and two. And this is what Matthew says. Uh, Jesus saw the crowds. <coughs> he went up the mountain. He's, and after he sat down, he called his disciples to him. Part of uh, Matthew's setting is that the Sermon on the Mount is really not taught to the people, it's taught to the disciples, although clearly a lot of this material was for the people. He began to speak and taught them, saying. So he went up a mountain and he taught. So what are we going to call it? Sermon on the Mount. Okay. It uh, <laughs> doesn't take a saint to figure that out. And he begins with blessed art. Now, from the beginning, going back as far as we have early Christian writers, even in the first century, second century, the Sermon on the Mount has had a very special place in the life of the church. Uh, most of the early church fathers did extensive commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount, wrote about it extensively. Uh, it has been held up since the very beginning. It, you know, Jesus taught lots of things. But if he wanted the definitive summary of the teaching of Jesus, the early church fathers would say, look no further than Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And that's kind of, if you go to a Christian bookstore today, that's kind of what it still is. You know, Sermon on the Mount, kind of a definitive uh, uh, summary. Now, not everybody knows this. I did not know this until a few years ago. But the sermon, the material on the Sermon on the Mount is not unique to the Sermon on the Mount. 
I used to think, you know, Jesus taught there nowhere else, but that's actually not true. Uh, it is also found in other Gospels, uh, and it is found in entirely different settings. We're told that Jesus said, blessed are, but he wasn't on a mountain. He was in a plane, or he was somewhere else. Uh, of course, Jesus could have taught these things on many occasions, as far as that goes. But the Gospel of Luke, in particular, is fascinating because it has a very similar collection. It's not identical, but it's very, very close to what we have in Matthew. Uh, it is known as the Sermon on the Plain. You all know that? You've done, you done study the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke sets up the teaching in this way, uh, chapter 6. It's not three full chapters, just one chapter. He came down with them, so he comes off the mountain. He stood at a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of the people in all Judea and Jerusalem. This is how you get a crowd, okay? You know, we're talking many, many people now, if you took it literally. And the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Imagine that as a crowd. And we got stories of Mr. Wesley who could preach to 10,000 people without amplification that could actually be heard. So, you know, the, we know that ancient people did have, the, have that ability. He looked up his disciples and said, blessed are. So he's in a plain, level ground, and he teaches. So will we call that the Sermon on the Plain? But look how it starts. Exactly the same material. Now, it goes further than this. It is striking that over half the material in the Sermon on the Mount is also found in Luke's Sermon on the Plain. 62 of the 106 verses are identical. And I do mean identical, exactly the same. Not only does Luke have much of the same material, but it's also preserved in the same order. You might call Luke's Sermon on the Plain, Sermon on the Mount, light. Kind of strip, stripped down. But the order is the same. They both have an introduction, which is the Beatitudes. Then we have the love of enemies. We have judge not. We have speck and log. We have tree and the fruit. We have Lord, Lord. And then we have the parable of the builders, which is the climactic summary. It's the same material. Not as extensive, but it's the same material. It goes further than that. Now, Mark's gospel has some of the same material, although Mark's not big on. Mark tells us that Jesus is a teacher like a bazillion times. But Mark includes almost no teaching. Mark really wants to focus on Jesus, the, the worker of, of dynamis, wondrous deeds. Some of the materials even found outside the Bible. Ever hear of a book called the Gospel of Thomas? Probably the only document outside the New Testament where authentic Jesus material from the first century is found. Not everything in it is, is fits that category, but some of it does, and so we'll be looking at some of that. Now, in the other Gospels, the material that we know as the Sermon on the Mount occurs in a variety of other settings, not in a mountain, but some other location. And the material is not gathered, particularly in Mark, for example. Mark will have a little of it, but it's kind of scattered out. It's not pulled together in exactly the same format as, uh, as Matthew, although Luke comes pretty darn close. It's scattered a bit. But it's Luke that I want to look at for just a moment because the relationship with Luke is so striking and so powerful and so dynamic that it actually tells us a little bit something about where Matthew got his material from and where Luke got his material from. Uh, not only is the material the same and it's presented in the same order, little drum roll, much of the language is identical for entire paragraphs and stories, word for word, identical in Greek. Now, do we think that Jesus spoke Greek? Probably not which tells you something. 
if you have material, extensive, big bodies of it that occurs in Luke and occurs in Matthew, identical, it tells you something. What it tells you is that Matthew is drawing on an earlier collection of Jesus' teaching that somebody else has pulled together and that Luke also had access to. Luke and Matthew have access to a written document, both of which becomes a, it becomes a resource for both of them. Luke and uh, Matthew are using a written source. It is a collection of the teaching of Jesus. It predates Matthew. It predates Luke. So it predates the, the 80s, you know, A.D. It's been preserved in Greek. We think it probably was not written in Greek originally, but at some point it's translated into Greek, uh, which means that the setting, though the setting on the mountain, may be a literary device of Matthew. And there's some strong reasons for thinking that it is a literary device of Matthew. The actual teaching content, the Sermon on the Mount, is not a creation of Matthew. It is something that predates him and something he had access to. You ever heard that term, Q? <laughs> Big mysterious word, according to some people. It's not. It's just when this stuff was uh, first sort of talked about, most of the scholars who were doing it were German. And does anybody know what the German word for source is? Quella. Q for short. That's all there is to it. It just means some unknown source that we've never found, but you don't have something identical in big sections in Greek and two people quoting it unless it was written down somewhere. Who knows? Someday they may dig it up. Probably not. Here's the basic opinion. We think that Q was a very early collection put together, the teaching of Jesus, probably in Aramaic originally, uh, it's m material that's probably taken from the ministry of Jesus when he was in Galilee teaching. Now, the passion narrative, Holy Week and the crucifixion story and the resurrection stories, where do those come from? Galilee? Jerusalem. So we got two types of material. We got the Jerusalem material, which basically is what Mark's going to focus on. Mark's a passion story with a long introduction. We're going to add to that some of the teaching of Jesus from Galilee which is exactly what Luke and Matthew do. When we compare the material in the Sermon on the Mount with the earliest account of the teaching in, in Mark, we find something that's interesting. And this is worth just nothing else mentioning in passion, passing. Mark tells us over and over and over that Jesus is a teacher. But if you actually read Mark, there's very little teaching. There. There's a little bit, not much. Uh, he tells us that Jesus is a teacher, but he just doesn't uh, run much of it by us. Um, and most of the material in the Sermon on the Mount is missing from Mark, though not all. There's a little bit of the Sermon on the Mount in there, not, not as the Sermon on the Mount, just some of the same teaching. Some of it is there. But unlike Matthew and uh, Luke, the material is not gathered together. Luke gath uh, gathers it in the Sermon on the Plain. Matthew gathers it in the Sermon on the Mount. Mark is just a little story here, a little story there, kind of sprinkled out. But some of, the, some of the same material scattered throughout the Gospel. Uh, Mark also confirms that Jesus used mountain settings, though he does not specifically say that Jesus taught on the mountain, but you find like in Mark 3, these statements like this. He went up the mountain, he called to him those whom he wanted, and they came to him. Um, now, who here has been to Galilee? Is there a flat inch in Galilee? <laughs> Very little, right? Down by the water. Galilee is basically mountainous. Mountains and hills and valleys, and right around the, the sea, there's just a little bit there that's kind of flat. So this is consistent with the topography of, of Galilee. There are also in Galilee 
lots of natural sort of, um, I guess you call them natural amphitheaters. You know, the Greeks designed these amphitheaters where you can whisper, and 100 yards away somebody can hear. You ever been in one of those kind of things? Acoustically, it can be done. Well, there's some places like that that are naturally like that. You can actually, the, the, the topography of the ground makes it very easy to project and to be heard and for sound to be amplified. Uh, one of those is the place, if you've been to Galilee, called it the, uh, uh, the Mount of Beatitudes, where there's that little area there where, where they, tradition says Jesus did that there. He probably taught in many places like that. The Gospel of Thomas contains at least 15 of the teachings that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, including several of the Beatitudes. I thought in just in passing you might be interested. This is Thomas 54. Blessed are the poor. By the way, um, this Beatitude is found in Matthew, Luke, and Thomas. Do you remember what it sounds like in Matthew? What's the, what's the quote in Matthew? Blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke, it's blessed are the poor. No spirit to it, just poor. And in Thomas, it's blessed are the poor. So Thomas is very much like Luke. For to you belongs the kingdom of heaven. Thomas 69. Blessed are those who go hungry. Now in Matthew it's hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matthew will also always spiritualize everything. Luke it's always literal. Again, Thomas tends to follow Luke. Blessed are those who go hungry. For the belly of him who, believe, who desires will be filled. Thomas 68. Jesus said, blessed are you. When you're hated and persecuted, and no place will be found wherever you have been persecuted. Again, closer to Luke. Matthew, it's going to be when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, okay? And Luke tends to follow here. Uh, now, big debate. Did Thomas, the, the, the document you have in Thomas, is it quoting from the biblical material? So it's a later document, or is this an earlier collection? And, you know, you page your quarter and you choose your scholar on that kind of thing. I tend to think that some of this material may be early material that, that just sort of parallel. It was saved in several places. The early church fathers were aware that there were other parallel passages. I mean, they weren't dumb. They were also aware that the Sermon on the Mount seems to be a compilation material, uh, material that Jesus probably taught at many times, like blessed are the poor. Do you think he just said that once in his entire life? Probably not. Probably something was taught over and over, variety of settings, you know. Uh, different people, different audiences. This setting. Remember this guy, John Calvin? He had an interesting observation. In his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he said. He thought the Sermon on the Mount was a summary of the doctrine of Christ collected out of his many and varied discourses. So what Calvin thought is that what Matthew had done is not recorded a historical event, but had basically compiled material together so it becomes a summary rather than something that actually happened. We tend to think of it as something that happened in one place and we get sort of artwork like this, which is wonderful. Uh, Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus going up a mountain to deliver the Beatitudes. Uh, this clearly is an uh, a introduction to the material. Um, the setting on the mountain, if you know anything about Matthew, fits the theology of, uh, of Matthew. One of the things that stands out about Matthew is that Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the new Moses. What did Moses bring? The law, the Torah. What does Jesus bring? The new law, the new Torah. Uh, 
So we got the Moses who did this. Jesus did this. Where did Moses go to get the law? A mountain. Where is Jesus going to preach the definitive new law? A mountain. We're going to do that. Uh, shouldn't be surprising that in Matthew, the teaching is arranged in five collections, of which the Sermon on the Mount is the first. Any significance to five? In the, in the Old Testament, we have the five books of the law, the Torah. So if you're going to have a new Torah, you're going to have five books or five collections of teaching. And uh, this seems to be part of what uh, Matthew's up to. And Mos uh, Matthew uses what's called uh, Moses typology. He, he always kind of comparing Jesus to, to Moses' figure. Now, if you sort of back up and look in the ancient world, now, Matthew is writing in Greek. So his audience is clearly in the Greco-Roman world. And it turns out, any of you science fiction fans? Yeah, I am too. If you took a page out of any science fiction book novel, could you tell that it was science fiction? Pretty quick, right? Okay, fantasy. By the way, we science fiction buffs know that fantasy is not science fiction. Okay. What would be the difference? Magic and all these figures and stuff like that, you know, very quickly. Literature has different, different genres, okay? There was a genre of literature in the ancient world that was called an epitome. The Greeks used it, the Romans used it, others used it, and it looks like that Matthew is using it. An epitome is a work that serves as a representative sample and a summary of the teaching of a great master, a great teacher. And we have many, many of these that survive. You can see that in the Sermon on the Mount itself, particularly in the final chapter. When you come down to this, uh, in chapter 7, near the end, he's done all the teaching. We sort of end with this one story. Here's the introduction. Everyone then who hears the words of mine and acts of them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. In other words, you should have been paying attention to all this material because it's fun. That serves as a summary. So it, it reads like an epitome. Uh, as an epitome, the Sermon on the Mount lays out what life in the kingdom of God is like. Jesus teaches the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. Or if you're Matthew, you won't say the word God. What do you say? The kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's just a Jewish thing. Jews today will not say the name of God. They will not write the name of God. It's just a bit too holy. And Matthew follows that tradition. Uh, it contains a lot of material that you know. Matter of fact, uh, consistently... Gallup polls and other polls have said, if you look at the Bible and ask people, what part of the Bible do you know the best? What parts of the Bible could you quote or recognize or be familiar with? Guess what comes in number one every time? Either the Sermon on the Mount or stuff from the Sermon on the Mount. Beatitudes, Lord's Prayer, ever hear of that? By the way, there's two versions, Matthew and Luke. Which one do we use? Matthew, you've got Luke. Luke was a little scant there. He cut it down a little too much. Golden rule, Sermon on the Mount. The meek shall inherit the earth, Sermon on the Mount. Salt of the earth, Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek, Sermon on the Mount. You, you got some familiar material here? Okay. Uh, go the second mile, Sermon on the Mount. Wolves in sheep's clothing, serving two masters, storing up treasure in heaven, casting pearls before swine. A lot of very, very familiar material that's been organized there. Now, even though Matthew tells us, and it appears that Matthew wants us to understand that uh, the occasion for the Sermon on the Mount was that Jesus saw the crowds, 
Matthew then turns and quickly says, and he gathered his disciples and he brought them up the hill and he began to teach autos. He began to teach them. And who were the them? We always assume it's kind of the people. Well, if you read Matthew, it's not. He's teaching his disciples. So guess what the content of the Sermon on the Mount is? Discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What do we need to know about that? Um, Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Falsely in my account. Now, who would the you there be? Is this John Schmuck, Jew, running around the countryside? Or is this somebody who's being persecuted because they've decided to follow Jesus? Okay. So there's evidence in there that Matthew wants us to understand that. Now, what's interesting is if you actually then get and look at the material, a lot of the material does not look like it was intended for disciples. A lot of the individual stories and sayings appear to be more aimed at a broader audience. Uh, Luke has the same material, but guess what? Luke does not frame this to disciples. He frames it to who? The general public, the general audience, um, the public at large. Even though Matthew wants us to understand the material is just to Jesus' disciples, there is evidence even in the Sermon on the Mount that a lot of the material was originally not intended for disciples. All you got to do is read it and look through that. Um, much of the material only makes sense if he's talking to people in general. There's nothing much demanded of them, the crowds, but it's also explicitly stated. Look at Matthew 7:28 near the end. Now, when Jesus has finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching. So who's been listening to it? The crowds. So we get that kind of tension in here. Add to this that when Jesus delivers the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, he's only called four of the twelve, which means eight missed the boat. Yeah. Again, all of this seems to indicate that when we have the Sermon on the Mount, what we're looking at is an epitome. It is a collection of teachings of Jesus that he probably delivered many places, many times, many circumstances. He's, uh, Matthew has done a wonderful job of collecting it. It is possible that Jesus never preached this thing as we now have it in exactly the same form. It is also possible he did. Uh, we can't rule that out. But we also have Luke's alternative. The collection is then passed down from generation to generation as an epitome, as a definitive collection, as a way of understanding what who Jesus was, what he was about, what he's trying to do. Uh, as it occurs in Matthew right now, it follows in verse 417, which is this statement, that the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, does that raise a question for you? If the kingdom of heaven has come near, what do I want to know? What's the kingdom of heaven? And what is it like? The Sermon on the Mount is meant to kind of lay that out for us. It explains what the kingdom of heaven is like, as does any parable of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like. We see that in all the parables as well. This is the content. The teaching of the disciples give to believers. Fulfill the Great Commission. Remember the Great Commission in Matthew 28? Go therefore make disciples. Uh, and one of the things that Jesus says there is teach them. Well, what should we teach them? Guess what? We should teach them what Matthew's taught us. Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the uh, second oldest Trinitarian formula we have, second to first Corinthians. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you and that everything I've commanded you appears to be 
the Sermon on the Mount, and probably the other four summaries as well, because we have more in there. It's the content of the life that we're called to live. So it's not accidental that the Sermon on the Mount has the reputation it has, has the position it has in Christian tradition. It is, in other words, the way we use the Sermon on the Mount today is probably the way Matthew intended for us to use it. It's an epitome. It's a summary. It's what you need to know if you're going to be a believer. It's going to open with the Beatitudes. It's going to announce that the coming of the kingdom is a blessing, and it's a blessing to whoever basically receives it. Now, Luke throws this a curveball. Do you remember what Luke adds? Woes. Yeah. There's blessings and there's woes. You, know. you don't want the woes, by the way. Uh, this is then followed by a greater righteousness that others are called to. Uh, the greatest righteousness is, is then ex contrasted to a traditional uh, Jewish teaching of the day. Uh, Matthew connects it with the Pharisees, but it's broader than the Pharisees. It's more just traditional teaching. We get this series of contrasts. You have heard it said. And by the way, this is probably not. So you've heard it said, but I say to you, it's not you've heard it read. But you've heard it said. So this is probably not a reference to the Jewish law as written, the law of Moses. This is a reference to what is called ora, oral Torah, the interpretation of Torah that the Pharisees and others would do. So this is a debate about how it is that we fulfill the law. Do we fulfill it the way some people say, or do we fulfill it this way? And Jesus enters into that debate, and that's a wonderful section to work through. Next, we turn to some traditional forms of Jewish piety. Ever heard of giving alms? We still do that? We're big on missions. Fasting? Methodists, not so big on that. Okay. Prayer. And in the context of this, we have something called the Lord's Prayer. Now, Luke will tell us that uh, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray as John taught his disciples. Uh, and then we have a version of the Lord's Prayer here. It's just he gives it as an example. Then we have... Uh, the proper attitude towards wealth and possessions. This is where Jesus stops preaching and goes to meddling. Uh, <laughs> then we have self-critical humility and trust in God. And then there's a drum roll and the whole thing comes to this crescendo of this wonderful parable of the two builders. One built his house on rock and the other built his house on sand. Now, do you remember that Jesus, and the, what's the Greek word for what Jesus says? He is not a carpenter. Yeah, they don't have wood in Israel, okay, just so you know that. There's not a lot of wood to build. He's a tecton, and probably stonemason is the closest we can come at. He's, a, he's a, a, somebody who, who does construction. Uh, so this analogy is very striking, isn't it? This is somebody who knows building materials. Uh, kind of bring that home. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And by the way, that will still preach today. So for 2,000 years... The words of the Sermon on the Mount have been understood as the foundation or as a rock, just the way Jesus intended it, words you could live by. And you can still buy lots of books that just lay it out just like that. So what are we going to do this summer? Well, we've got several weeks, so we, got, we can have some fun. We're going to explore it, and we're going to, I thought it would be neat because we have binocular vision. Not only do we have the Sermon on the Mount, we've got this, the Sermon on the Plain. Wouldn't it be fun to compare them? So we have two versions of the teaching of Jesus. Not everything, but a lot of material. We also, with that stereop uh, stereopic view, uh, will be able then to compare it to other Gospels, like, for example, 
Some of the material, not much, but a little of it occurs in Mark. So when it's applicable, we will look at Mark. And by the way, Thomas. We've got 15 of the statements that are found in Thomas, so I thought it would be fun to kind of look at that. So when we get to a particular teaching, what we're going to do is look at the surviving examples of that teaching. There may be one or two or three or even four of those. So next week, we're going to begin the first of two weeks, I believe. I'm still working that out on the Beatitudes. So if you want to read ahead, it's just verses 1 through 12. And uh, there are eight Beatitudes in Matthew. And we'll take it from there. Sound like fun? Sounds like a good summer.